not Pastor Matt. Unless he like snuck into some creatine and got tattoos and grew his hair out a little bit. Um, nope, uh, my name is Pastor Bliss. I am the lead pastor of Redemption City Church down in Frederick, Maryland, so just about an hour south of here. Um, uh, Matt and I met through Acts 29. We're an Acts 29 church as well, which you are, and so in some ways that makes us sister churches. Uh, so he asked me to fill in for him while he's on vacation, and so that way him and Shay can get some rest, and I'm more than happy to do so. Um, we are going to beat your bulletin, say Philippians 2 this morning, but that's not true, so don't turn to Philippians 2. Um, if you would, flip over to Psalm chapter 1. Um, if you are not familiar with the Bible, take your Bible, divide it right in half, and you should, hypothetically, land in the Psalms, and then it's just chapter 1. If you land in Job, go forward a book. If you land in Proverbs, go backward a book. And so uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 this morning. Um, and so once you turn there, um, why don't you, a little old-fashioned, why don't you stand with me, um, and we will read God's Word. So listen now with open ears to the book that we love, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for calling us here together to worship you. And we thank you for the wonderful things you've given us here in your word. And we pray that as we look at it together, that your spirit would be present to help us see and understand these wonderful things and bring about the change in our hearts that you desire. And we pray that we would leave this place a people who are more deeply in love with you and more deeply in love with one another. Jesus, it's in your name we pray and the people of God said, amen. You can be seated. It's always been interesting to me that the disciples um, in the New Testament, um, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus had um, a whole multitude of followers, but within that he had 12 special men known as his 12 disciples who would later on become the 12 apostles. Um, and they spent three years with Jesus watching him heal and feed and care for people in conversations and preach and teach. Um, and we only get a fraction of that in the Gospels. But it's interesting to me that of, out of all the time they spent with Jesus, and out of all of the things that they could have ever asked him to show them, wherever the only question ever recorded in the Gospels of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them something was this. They look at him and they say, teacher, teach us to pray. They say, master, teach us to pray out of all of the things, out of all of the things that they could have asked him. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so what does he give them? He then gives them the Lord's Prayer, um, which uh, many commentators believe is actually a summary of the book of Psalms. Um, that if you look at every stanza in the Lord's Prayer, it actually heads off a major section in the book of Psalms. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't walk through, all right, guys, we'll get out your notepads. Let me give you 12 steps to a better prayer life. Um, he does not simply look at them and give them, here's this one nugget that you need in order to, to, to have your best prayer life now. What he does is he gives them the Lord's Prayer. He gives them something to, to look on and to meditate and to repeat and to imitate. 
And it's a beautiful question and it's a beautiful answer. He teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And so when we come to Psalm 1, well, before we even get there, uh, most of us probably, if, if, if I was a betting man, would probably bet that most of you don't remember how you begin to talk and how you learn to talk. Um, my wife on Tuesday gave birth to our second daughter. Um, and I'm not... Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was the Lord's grace. Um, those are the other dads of daughters in the room going, you have two weddings to pay for. That, <laughs> that hit me as I was like, I really hope it's a girl, because we didn't know until she, was, until she was born. And I'm not here leaving my wife and, to a newborn and a three-year-old. My, uh, my in-laws are in town, so don't. You can relax. Um, I'm, I'm not a monster. Um, but I really love these early stages. I love watching their brains develop. I love watching them learn language. And so again, most of us probably don't remember how we learn to talk. And so let me refresh our memory. Um, between the ages of zero and three are really the formative ages for learning to talk. Between zero and three months, a baby listens to your voice. That's all they're doing is they're listening to your voice. He coos and giggles and gurgles and tries to make the same sounds you make. From three to six months, your baby is learning how people talk to each other. He's paying attention to how you talk and the words you use. From six to nine months, the baby will play with sounds. Some of these will sound like baba or dada. The baby smiles hearing a happy voice or cries and looks when it hears an unhappy voice. From nine months to 12 months, the baby will begin to understand simple words. She, she stops to look at you as if to say, no, no. If someone asks, where's mommy, she'll look for mommy. She will point, make sounds, and use her body to tell you what she wants. From 12 to 15 months, she actually begins to use words. This includes using the same sounds consistently to identify objects such as baba for bottle or juju for juice. Many babies at this point have one or two words, and yet they understand 25 or more. From 15 to 18 months, the child will begin to use complex gestures to communicate with you and will continue to build up her vocabulary. She may take your hand, walk you to the bookshelf, point to a book and say, book, in order to say, hey, I want you to read that book to me. Now, this only covers the first 18 months, but as the child progresses, she begins to add words and syllables and logic. And as you probably noticed, two of the common denominators in those first 18 months is a process of observation and imitation. In fact, in a, in a recent article in the New York Times titled Too Small to Fail, uh, columnist Nicholas Kristof makes the case that in order to help kids advance educationally, not only do we need continued educational reform, not only do we need to pay our teacher better wages, um, but he actually makes a case for that in order to help get our kids in universities and to help them progress educationally, um, that we really need to begin with preschool, even though he makes the case that preschool might even be too late. Because brain research in the last dozen years underscores that the time that shapes the child as an adult, the outcomes, uh, they come mostly through the age of, uh, through, excuse me, start over, that the time of life that might shape adult outcomes the most is pregnancy to three years. Dozens and dozens of research has shown us that what shapes the child the most is pregnancy to three years. In fact, he quotes a statistic by the, by, that by the age four, a child of professionals have heard, this is staggering, have heard 30 million more words than children on welfare. 30 million more words. 
He says the road to college attainment, higher wages, and social mobility in the United States starts at birth. He's quoting there um, James Heckman, who is a Nobel-winning um, economist out of the University of Chicago. He says, the greatest barrier to college education is not high tuition or the risk of student debt. He says, it's the skills children have when they first enter kindergarten. Now, what does any of this have to do with Psalm 1? Well, Psalm 1 is the only psalm in the entire book of Psalms that is not a prayer. Uh, The book of Psalms is a prayer book, but Psalms 1 is the only one that is not a prayer. And the book of Psalms has served for thousands of years um, as the introduction to the well-used and worn prayer book of God's people. In fact, historically, the gospel narrative in the book of Psalms have been the most used sources of Christian meditation and contemplation for the church um, in the Bible. Uh, The Psalter, the book of Psalms, functions as the Jewish common prayer book used in synagogues and private worship. In fact, this was, the book of Psalms was Jesus' prayer book. During the monastic period of church history, the Psalms were read and memorized and recited in this continuous rhythm every single month. Um, John Calvin, who was an early pastor, an early Christian thinker, um, in all of his early Reformed churches, he put the Psalms to music. He put the Psalms to music in order to have them sung in the church. In his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this. He says, The design of the Holy Spirit in the book of Psalms was to deliver the church a common form of prayer. Calvin says that's what the gift that we've been given in the book of Psalms. And yet, today, the Psalms has widely fallen into disuse. And as I talk to people, because one of the things even we talk a lot about at Redemption is using the book of Psalms as a regular rhythm in the prayer life. And sort of some of the common um, excuses or sort of protests that I hear come up are that it takes a lot of theological literacy to navigate the Psalms, that they contain a lot of difficult passages. Like, how am I supposed to pray that my enemy's babies would get smashed on the rocks? That's a tough one to pray sometimes, unless you're driving in D.C. traffic, and then the imprecatory psalms are incredibly easy to pray. Um, The psalms are poetry, and the reality is that most of us guys, we got married and poetry kind of fell off to the side if it was ever a part of our lives. Not many of us read poetry on on a daily basis, and so the prose and the lines and the rhythms we're not used to. And also the psalms just take time to penetrate. The Psalms take time to massage down into our bones. We live in a fast-paced culture that is addicted to quick results, and that's not what you get in the Psalms. The Psalms take time to chew on. They require intentional focus and time, much like a child learning to speak. My barely one-week-old, I don't get frustrated at her because she has yet to say dada. Now, if we're nine months from now and we're still not saying dada, Her and I are going to have a conversation, but right here, right now, I'm not frustrated at her because it takes time. It takes time. Listen to Eugene Peterson. Um, He's a pastor, um, or he was a pastor in the Maryland area. He now lives out in Montana. Um, He is a scholar when it comes to the Psalms and the Hebrew languages. Listen to what he says about this. He says, essential to the practice of prayer is to fully realize this secondary quality He says the first word is God's word. He says in prayer, the first word is always God's word. And that's different than you and I usually think about prayer. Because when we usually think about prayer, we think about it like revving up our engines. Let's sit down. Let's get into it. All right, dear Lord, here we go. In fact, my mom used to have a boss who would sort of mock her a little bit for being a Christian. And so whenever they would have a difficult situation, he would always like call up and say, yep, no, Lord, it's me. It's Barry. Yep, no, B-A-R-R-Y. That's right. 
And that's funny, but most of us approach prayer that way, is if we're dialing up God and we're initiating. But uh, Peterson reminds us that the first words is God's word. We are never the first word. We are never the primary word. He says, the massive, overwhelming previousness of God's speech to our prayers, however obvious, it is in Scripture. It is not immediately obvious to us simply because we are so much more aware of ourselves than we are of God. He says, we don't just naturally think that God is the one who initiates with us because we are more consumed with us than we are with God. It's the reason why we begin worship with a call to worship. Not just because we want like, hey guys, all right, hey, time to look forward, time to focus. But the reason why we do a call to worship is to be reminded that this is what we're doing here gathered and listening and communing and singing and celebrating communion is not in order to get God's attention, but because we already have God's attention in Christ and he is calling us to worship him and to be renewed and reimagined every single week as we walk into this place and our prayer lives are no different. They are a response to God's initiation in our life. And as we soak in the Psalms and meditate in scripture, we are reminded of this time and time and time again. John 15, 16 reminds us of this. John 15, 16 reminds us that we don't choose God, that God chooses us. Everything that you and I do, we do in response to God's initiation Therefore, prayer is, as one theologian has called it, answering speech. Answering speech. That to pray is to answer what God has already done to call you. Um, I think often about the scene in the garden. In Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve have sinned. They've, they've wrecked everything, and they're hiding from God. And yet God comes in the cool of the day, and he doesn't come as a father who you just broke his favorite golf club. He shows up and says, where are you? Where are you? Gives us an incredible picture into the heart of the Father. They were hiding, and yet He shows up and He initiates. In 2 Samuel 7, God sent David a prophetic word, and here's how David responds. David, the King David, the writer of the, psalm, of the majority of the Psalms, responds by literally saying, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken. And because you have spoken, your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. God's speech, his word, creates real prayer because real prayer is always an answer to God's revelation. And the gift we have in the Psalms is we have not only revelation about God, but we have God's word that he has offered to us to give back to him. The Psalms is one of the very few books where it's not only God's word to us, but it is words for us to give back to God. And so in the Psalms, we find an environment rich for developing lives of prayer. Maybe another way to think about it is if you're going to plant a garden, you need soil that is rich. And listen, the book of Psalms is rich, rich soil for learning to pray. Peterson continues, our personal experience in acquiring language is congruent with the biblical witness and provides an accessible laboratory for verifying this because we learned language so early in our lives, we have no clear memory of this process. But by observing our own children, we confirm the obvious. I love this line. Listen to this line. Language is spoken into us. He says, language is spoken into us. We learn language by being spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. 
Then slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer mama, papa, bottle, blanket, yes, no. None of these words were our first word. So where can we go to learn our language as it develops into maturity, as it answers God? The answer of the Psalms, the great sprawling university that Hebrews and Christians have attended to learn to pray. So with that, let's jump into Psalm chapter 1. To begin, I want to focus on verse 2 of Psalm 1. So look with me as I begin in verse 1 and read through to verse 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist uses an interesting word in verse 2, the word meditate. And don't think like we're sitting cross-legged saying our alms, not that type of meditation. Uh, Because the word meditate is actually used throughout the psalms. One Hebrew word literally means to mutter or to talk to oneself. This refers to the act of meditation. Right, that's good news for some of us, right? We're like, yes, I'm not totally weird. This act of meditation or talking to oneself refers to the fact that meditation entails both uh, both focused attention and personal application. Uh, The other word that we see show up in the Hebrew means to muse or to ponder. In fact, in Psalm 77 and Psalm 143, we are called to meditate on the works of God in nature and in history. In Psalm 119, we're exhorted to meditate on God's word. His verbal revelation in Psalm 63, the psalmist says, I meditate on thee. I meditate on God. Clearly, many of the psalms themselves are extended meditations showing us how to do this. So the question I want to answer this, or this morning is, what is meditative prayer? And what is meditative, uh, what is it that meditation, uh, excuse me, or what is the meditation that leads to deepening prayer? There are a few observations we can make from Psalm 1 that I think will help in answering this question. First, we see that the the object or basis of meditation is what? It's the law of the Lord. It's what the psalmist is meditating on, the Word of God. There are many other things that people may and should meditate on, but in Psalm 1, the primary concern is with the Word of God. The place of meditation, you could say, is between prayer and the Word of God. The place of meditation happens between prayer and the Word of God. As I mentioned answer, as I mentioned earlier, there is answering prayer. Uh, but the same theologian also describes something called calling prayer. So if answering prayer is, is responding to the initiation of God, calling prayer, what that is, is it's driving down deep in your heart and soul, reminding yourself what God has done for you. In fact, this word meditate shares the same root word that is used to describe a dog enjoying a bone. And if you've ever seen a dog enjoying a bone, it gnaws and it takes its time and it slobbers and it is focused. And it's the same root word that we get for meditate, this driving down deep and savoring and enjoying. This is essentially preaching to yourself. And here's why this is this aspect of this, this calling prayer is so important in, in meditation is because because no one talks to you more than you. No one talks to you more than you. You are, you are in your own head. There is a constant narrative that you are feeding yourself and talking to yourself. And what we need in those moments is to remind ourselves and pay attention to what it is we are telling ourselves. I, I tell our church this all the time. Listen, we are professionals 
throughout the week of storing up reasons why we are never blank enough and fill in the blank. Never good enough, never beautiful enough, never rich enough, never successful enough. We are professionals at filling up. We have file cabinets upon file cabinets upon file cabinets. I can right here and now pull something out from 15 years ago to show you why I was never successful enough. We are professionals at that. It's one of the beauties of corporate worship where we come in and we're, and we're told, but Christ is. Christ is more than enough. And you're in Him, and so now you are more than enough. We're professionals at that. So this aspect of calling prayer is reminding ourselves who we are in Christ. We see this on display in Psalm 42. Uh, if you've grown up in church, you're familiar with the Psalms. This one is probably familiar. The psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pant my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then in verse 5, he shifts. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Listen to what he says. The psalmist says to, so the psalmist is talking to his soul now. And he turns to his soul and he says, hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. The psalmist is talking to his own soul here. Psalm 103 is another example. In the midst of distress, he is meditating and saying, don't forget the benefits of God. In fact, what I love about the Psalms is so many times what you get is the psalmist repeating to himself something until he believes it. How good and wonderful is the steadfast love of the Lord. How good and wonderful is the steadfast love of the Lord. How good and wonderful. And guys, if we're all honest, there are days where we have to repeat those truths until we believe them. That there's no silver bullet. There's no magical thing that you can wave and suddenly forget the pain and despair. But what the Psalms do is they speak into the midst of it. So we first see that meditation takes place between prayer and God's word. Second, we see that delighting in the law of the Lord is closely associated with meditation. If we're honest, if we're honest, we don't usually associate delight and law. Those aren't usually two words that we put together in the same sentence. But I think that the fact that the psalmist is willing to go there shows us two things about meditation. First, meditation involves not just the head, but the heart. When the psalmist says delight, delight in the law, he is not simply saying, I intellectually study the law, but that there's an internal relishing and cherishing of the truth. Secondly, that meditation involves not just thinking, but acting. Delight in the law. The law is not simply a matter of noticing truths and principles. You only delight in the law if you love having God tell you what to do. Meditation then means the very hard thinking, how does this apply to me? If this truth were alive in my heart, how would I live differently? In fact, we could say that one, that this is also one of the promises of meditation. Look back at verse 1. Why does the psalmist begin with? He begins with blessed, or other translations might translate it happy. Now this is not simply a, I put a smile on my face type of happy. What the psalmist, and the psalmist shows us this by contrasting two pictures in nature. The psalmist points out that those who meditate and delight in God's law are like what? They're like trees planted by streams of water who are growing. 
Those who do not, that's the picture of the godly, trees planted by the water. The picture of the ungodly is chaff. Now, the reality is that most of us have no idea what chaff is. And so chaff is the husk, um, so think like corn, that went around wheat. And chaff was useless. In fact, in the first century, in order to separate chaff from wheat, what they would do is they would have these big threshing floors, and they would have these big pitchfork-looking tools, and they would throw the wheat up, and they would allow the air to, or the wind to blow through. Sometimes it was man-made wind with, with, uh, with like man-powered fans, but the wind would blow away the chaff, the useless chaff, and then the, the heavier, useful wheat would fall back to the threshing floor. And so this useless husk is what the psalmist compares those who are ungodly, who do not meditate on the Lord day and night. And the juxtaposition that the psalmist is making with these two pictures is important because here's the picture that the psalmist is painting. The first, we, the first thing we observe is that a tree is useful while chaff is useless. You have like, a tree is useful. There's so many uses for a tree. A chaff is pointless. It is useless, and so ungodliness is of no profit. Secondly, a tree is stable and lasting, while chaff is blown about and blown away. And so ungodliness leads to instability, and all its gains are temporary. This is something we don't talk about often in the church, is that ungodliness works for a season. That sin sometimes works for a season. That losing your temper and being angry sometimes gets the the change or the behavioral change you want. That lusting after someone who is not your husband or your wife provides this momentary relief and satisfaction. But what the Bible points to time and time again is that those gains are temporary. And once again, you are left with your hands empty and your life broken. So ungodliness leads to instability, and its gains are temporary. And finally, a tree bears fruit. A chaff does not bear fruit. And because a tree bears fruit, it can give life to people. It grows more trees. A chaff cannot grow any new life, nor can it feed anyone. It has no nutritional value. So godliness matures, nurtures, bears life, while ungodliness leaves you hungry, unsatisfied, and starving. So the psalmist lays out that meditation leads to blessedness. Right? There, there's so many different types of clauses and phrases um, that we often lose sight of this. But if you look at the first two verses and just sort of look at the bookends of how the first verse begins and how the second verse ends, what we see is, blessed is the man who meditates day and night. If you remove all the middle uh, sort of contractions and contrasting phrases, what you get is that if you want blessedness, you have to meditate. The word blessed in Hebrew, again, means more than just happy, go lucky. It refers to a complex peace and fullness of life, total well-being and enormous promise. Now, here's what I don't mean. Because you begin to hear this, and even as I'm sitting here preaching, I'm like, hurry and get to the next paragraph because it's starting to sound a little health and wealth. It's starting to sound a little bit like, guys, I have the answer. I'm rolling in, pastor from a different town. I got, I, got, I got the answer. I don't know if Matt's given it to you yet, but here I go. I got it for you. This is how you're going to lead your best life, your life to the fullest, your life to the... And that is not reality. Because life has more of a tendency to punch us in the stomach than it does to pick us up. The Christian life is a life of suffering. And here's what I mean by that. Either we're suffering or someone we know is suffering. 
And so the sort of trumped-up American spirituality that somehow we can do something to rise above the pain and the suffering is just that, American spirituality. It's not biblical spirituality. It's not biblical formation. It's not what Christ invites us to and calls us into. This blessedness that comes from meditating on God's Word is not an immunity from suffering and dryness. How do we know this? Because in the same passage, the psalmist says that the tree bears fruit. Does he say that the tree bears fruit all of the time? What does he say? The the tree bears fruit in season. In season. And I know, my, my wife is from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has four seasons. It's not like southern Florida that's like, we have two seasons, really hot and sort of hot, right? <laughs> that there are seasons, and, and, and trees bear fruit differently in different seasons. It bears fruit in seasons, but what else does the psalmist say? But its tree, but its leaf does not wither. Here's what this means, that God's promise that follows meditation is that your life will lead to stability. A meditating person, think about them as like an evergreen tree. Yet we must not always expect meditation to lead again to uniform experiences of joy and love. There are seasons for great delight. Think about springtime blossoms. There are seasons for wisdom and maturity. Think about summer fruit. It means there are also spiritual winter times where we don't feel God close to us, though our roots may still be firmly in truth. And that needs to be encouraging for some of you in this room tonight who have come in here and you feel like your prayers are just hitting the roof, that God is far from you even though he promises he's not. You don't want to be in community. You don't want to be in your Bible. You don't want to be in prayer. And what's so encouraging is while God invites us back to himself, the Bible also lets us know that that's human. It's normal. And we keep pressing through and we keep hoping. We keep hoping. One author puts it this way. He says, The promised immunity of the leaf from withering is not independence from the rhythm of the seasons. But listen, but freedom from the crippling damage of drought. Drought cripples a tree. But what God promises us, if we are in Him and meditating on His law day and night, that the drought will come, but the drought will not ultimately destroy us. Whatever He does prospers. So the psalmist says in the last line of verse 3, he doesn't mean that you will reach every goal, You will always be successful, right? Because it's not what the Bible calls us to. It calls us to faithfulness. It's not well done, my good and successful servant. It's well done, my good and faithful servant. It means something more like this. A meditating person will always grow. Sometimes it will grow its growth internally through suffering as in winter. And sometimes it is externally through, through faithfulness as in springtime. But the promise is you will always grow and prosper. Now, here's where, for me, meditation becomes puzzling. Meditating on the law, meditating on the Word of God. If we want to see a a full example of what this looks like, we have but to go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the famous Sermon on the Mount that Jesus of Nazareth preached. And what Jesus gives us is an extended meditation on the law of God. What it really means to meditate. In fact, again, a number of commentators believe that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was a sermon on Psalm 1. They begin the same way, Blessed is the righteous man. 
And there are a lot of people that love this sermon. In fact, at my, at my study at home, I had this large piece of artwork that was a magazine, the New York Post, from 1968. They had, they had contracted a nun to design the cover. And so she had painted a picture and was inspired by the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Um, and it's a beautiful piece of artwork. And so uh, many people look at the Sermon on the Mountain and go, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful sermon. It's inspired beautiful pieces of artwork. And yet, and yet, as beautiful as the Sermon on the Mount is, if you do not believe in, salva- in salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, the Sermon on the Mount is not beautiful. The Sermon on the Mount is terrifying. Here's what I mean by that. As Jesus meditates on the Ten Commandments, he says, listen, the law tells you, do not murder. But what I tell you, and this is Jesus meditating on what that means and the implications in life, says, To be angry is to murder. Jesus meditates on this and says, the law says, do not be angry, but I say, don't harbor resentment. To be angry at someone in your heart is the same as murder. Or, Jesus continues, the law says, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, listen, to lust after a woman who is not your wife is to have committed adultery in your heart. Without the New Testament, as I heard one pastor put it, Psalm 1 is impossible because the only way to truly delight in the law of God is to understand that Jesus has fulfilled the law. That he has lived the life you never could have lived, died the death you never could have died. And because of this, you are now free to delight in the law because what it tells us is it tells us what our, our Savior loves and what our Savior hates. It lets us know who our Savior is. It reintroduces us time and time again to the God who we love and the God who loves us. Because the reality is, listen, here's the bad news and the good news. There is only one person who can perfectly delight in the law of the Lord, and that is Christ. And we know this because we see throughout the gospel narratives that he meditated Because everything that came out of Jesus' mouth, not just in the morning, but at the deepest moment of pain was Scripture. What does he quote on, on the cross? He quotes Psalm 22. And that's not some deified moment of this super Savior who's there and he's like, I'm going to quote Scripture. That is a man in real agony and real pain having his life stripped from him. And what comes out? What comes out? is not a curse. What comes out is not anger. What comes out is the Psalms. It was so down deep in his bones. He had, med- he had spent 33 years meditating on it. That when he was squeezed and when he was pushed and when he was twisted, what came out was God's law. Who The psalmist says, was his delight to meditate on day and night. Because listen, our default is away from meditation on God's law. But Jesus invites us into this meditation on God's law because listen, he has gone to the cross and become chaff. He has gone to the cross and become useless for you and for me so that we can come to Scripture, look at the law, and see his invitation to obedience as a benefit and not a burden as what leads to flourishing. 
And so I want, to end, uh, I want to end this morning with just a few practical observations about meditation because we don't have to overcomplicate this. It's not something we have to overcomplicate. And so just to be practical for, for a few moments, it's simply to go, here, here's, here's what meditation, and I would encourage you just, even this week, take Psalm 1. Read through the first few chapters of the book of Psalms, and as you read, be asking yourselves, it's simply meditation is just asking yourselves questions like this. What does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about myself? How does this passage point to my need for redemption, for restoration, for renewal? And then probably one of my favorite questions, well, not my favorite questions to ask, because oftentimes this is the most revealing about my life, is to look at a passage and say, man, if this truth were radically alive in my heart, how would I be living differently? How would I be living differently? Even the truth we talked about today, to delight in the law of the Lord, day and night is to lead to a blessedness, a security, a strength. And I know for me, if that truth were radically alive in my life, in my heart, I wouldn't be looking, I wouldn't be functioning in my life so much in my own strength. My prayer life would be a lot different. My reliance on the Spirit every single day would be a lot different because I recognize it's the Lord that gives me stability, not the work of these hands. Not the work of these hands. We don't have to overcomplicate this. What does this passage teach me about God? What does this passage teach me about myself? If, it were, if, it, if this truth were radically alive in my heart, how would it look different? That's it. This is meditating on Scripture. This is imitating Jesus and allowing it to sink down into our bones. Like a tree putting down roots, it takes time, but it leads to depth and stability. The deeper one's roots are in Christ through meditation, the, like, the less likely that a windstorm will blow you over. Meditation is about looking at the Word of God like a thirsty tree looks for water. It is a spiritual tasting of Scripture, a delighting in it, a sensing, a sensing the sweetness, thanking God and praising God for what you see. It's also spiritually digesting Scripture, applying it, thinking through how it affects you. And what the Bible promises us is that it will lead to character growth, to fruit. That meditating on the Word of God day and night will lead to not just your, these warm, fuzzy feelings about God, but where the rubber meets the road, there is now love and joy and peace and patience and humility and self-control. Because it's the Spirit at work conforming us into the image of Christ as we imitate Him in meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, and not just meditating, but delighting and obeying. It's the Lord meeting us through His Spirit, reimagining our lives, leading us away from a divided life toward this wholehearted flourishing and delight that we once had in the garden and that He is bringing back through Christ. This is an invitation to us this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we recognize that you... Um, that you are good and you're gracious. That, Lord, there is, there is none like you. And, Lord, what a gift it was that you gave us a book like the Psalms. Lord, you knew that we were going to be a forgetful people. You knew that like a child learning to speak, that 
One of the greatest gifts, apart from salvation, that you've given mankind, which is the gift of prayer, of communing with the one who's created the mountains, who has created life. That you don't leave us to our own to figure out what it means to pray to you, but that you've given us scripture, you've, you've spoken, you've initiated, and that you invite us simply to respond. So Lord, I recognize that even in my own life that meditating day and night and delighting in your law is not something that comes natural to me and yet you invite me into it which means that you must promise that you're going to give all of the grace needed in which to do it. And so Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray that they would be men and women, that this would be a church, that Liberty Church would be a church marked by a delight and a meditation in your word. And Lord, the evidence of that would be faithfulness and fruitfulness and the men, women, and children that call her home. Lord, we recognize that all of this is possible because we are in Christ. And so Christ, it is in your name we pray. Amen.